The following audio is from the King's Chapel in Clifton, Virginia. For more information about our church or to listen to more sermons from this series, you can visit us online at thekingschapel.org. Well, good morning, everyone. If you have a Bible with you, this is the Word of God. This is what we preach from every week. And, and uh, so if you don't have one, we would love to give you one at the Connection Center. But if you do, you can turn in the Scriptures to, there's a couple different places. I'd encourage you to, to uh, turn to Genesis right at the beginning of your Bibles. We're going to be looking at Genesis chapter 16 and Genesis chapter 21. And I'll also talk to you from Matthew 22 briefly uh, here at the beginning, but uh, Genesis 16 and 21 is where we're going to continue to talk about this idea that we've been discussing in the last few weeks, which is this, this, uh, this amazing thing in a relationship with Jesus Christ where we can both know and do the will of God. We can be part of God's plan. We can be part of, of the work that he is doing. And what we've begun to see over the last few weeks is that God is always at work around us, always at work. And one of the wonders of our Christian faith is that in that work, he invites us into the work that he is already doing. Maybe you're seeing this in your community, in your, your group of friends. There are things that are happening. You see the things happening or about to happen in the lives of, of others that will echo through eternity. I wonder how many of you have been seeing this over the last few weeks and begun to experience God doing what only God can do. This past week, I had this this privilege uh, on multiple occasions, this profound joy of being able to pray with two different individuals to receive Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior this week. And so that was, yeah, praise God. It was Sunday and on Monday. And so I had the sense, I'm like, Tuesday morning, I wake up and I'm like, God, what now? What do you want to do together today? And I, I hope and pray that that's the sense of anticipation that, that we will begin to walk in, that God is at work. And as we draw near to him, we have this invitation extended to us to join him in his work. One of these uh, two parties that was thrown in heaven for uh, someone's salvation, one was through someone that I, I barely knew uh, that had seeds planted and water poured on from years of relationship with uh, people like Pastor Bill and, and Pastor Marty over the years in this church who have poured into this individual. And I just got to be there for that, that final culminating moment where he crossed from death to life to pray with him and with, with um, my friend Mike O, who's here now as well, uh, to pray for a friend for salvation. And it was really awesome. And, th- and then the other was after church on Sunday, after being in King's Kids, uh, my son, Marky, my six-year-old, said he wanted to uh, pray, to give his life to Jesus. So we had told him the gospel before, you know, we had prayed with him and for him, but there was something different in him. He heard the gospel clearly presented by his teacher, who was uh, Elizabeth Snyder last Sunday, and there were others in the room helping. And afterward, they gave me and Beth the honor of of praying with our son for his salvation. And so, uh, yeah, yeah. You know, can I tell you, there's nothing more meaningful to me than to see my children uh, come to faith in Jesus. This is what it's all about. This is, for me, one of the most exciting things to see them and and to know that I'm not in control. Do you know, parents, you're not in control of your, your children's decisions in life? But we, by the grace of God, get to be used by God to pour into them and and to enjoy this privilege of raising children in the Lord. And and I could see that in this, I could be used by God, and so can you. God wants to change lives. He wants to change legacies for eternity. He is drawing people to himself, and he invites us into that work. And the work that Jesus came to do was to seek and save the lost through us. So the question for us is, if God is always at work around him, how do we join him in what he's already doing? How do we uh, grow to be sensitive to the spirit of God, knowing and doing the will of God? And what I will tell you is that it all flows out of relationship with him. Do you know him? Do you know God intimately? 
As God builds his kingdom, as he uses this body, this church for that purpose, he doesn't primarily want our service or our ministry. Do you know he wants your heart? He wants your love. Do you love him? When we think about our relationship with God, sometimes you know, we, we can be in this place where we, we might be able to say, I serve God, I honor God, I revere God, I fear God, but I'm not so sure that I love God. And yet, what Jesus tells us is that there's no higher aim than to love God. Not just to know him, know about him, but to love him. In Matthew 22, 34, well, we'll, we'll just give some context, starting in verse 34, Matthew 22. It says, but when the Pharisees heard that Jesus had silenced the Sadducees, they gathered together, and one of them, a lawyer, boo, right? I'm just kidding. <laughs> a lawyer asked him a question to test him. And he said this, teacher, which is the greatest commandment in the law? And he said to him, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. And a second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. Jesus says in response to this question, there is no higher aim in this life than to love God with our heart, mind, and our strength and then to love our neighbor as ourselves. Jesus is, is echoing the voice of his father thundering on the mountain in Deuteronomy chapter six, where God tells him above all else, love me. That's what he desires for us, that we love him tenderly. And out of that love, we grow in love for others, that we express our love to God in our love for others. And, and so if you've been here for the last year, you know that this will actually be the third time that I've preached on, on this particular commandment in 2023. Why? Because Jesus says, this is the most important thing. This is the one thing. This is our highest and best aim. It all comes down to this. If we love God, we will grow to increasingly do the priorities that he set out for us as a church. If we love God, we will pray. When the world is in crisis around us, when our own lives are in turmoil, that will be our tendency. We will go to him as our refuge and strength. We will pray as individuals and as a church. If we love God more and more, we won't be able to help but praise him, to sing his praises, to declare his excellencies to our brothers and sisters in Christ, to talk about the greatness and the goodness of God. And if we love God, as we grow in love for him, we won't be able to help but tell others about him, to proclaim him to a world that desperately needs good news. And, and there is no greater joy than seeing others come to saving faith in Jesus as we proclaim this gospel. But all of this, all of this praying and praising and proclaiming these things that we've talked about, these are the priorities that the Lord has given us as a church, but it all flows out of relationship with him. So I ask you again, do you love him? Do you love him? And if, if not, if, if you're struggling or you're thinking about your life and, and you're wondering, does my life reflect affection for God? A, a follow-up question might be for you, how do I grow in my affection for God? God offers us intimacy and what scripture tells us is that we're made for it. Jesus describes this relationship with God as like a, a, a vine with branches. Those branches are made for the vine and we receive life and we bear fruit as we stay in close relationship with him. But how do we do this? And number one, Jesus says to love God with all our hearts. That is our affection. We do this by seeking God to stir us with more affection for him, more not less. You can ask him even now, you can ask him, God, increase my love for you. Increase my affection for you. Make my heart soft toward you. And what scripture tells us in Ephesians chapter five and also Galatians chapter three is it gives us this, these ways of growing in intimacy and affection, affection toward the Lord. It says to talk about the word of God. It says to address one another with psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs making melody in our hearts to the Lord. 
One of the ways we grow in affection for God is by talking about scripture with our fellow brothers and sisters in Christ, talking about what we're learning, speaking the word to one another, talking about what God is doing in our lives. I don't know if you've had this experience, but when you, when you speak with a friend and the spirit of God is at work in their lives, you can just tell. It's, it's like this transaction takes place where you begin to, to draw nearer to the Lord. You begin to be filled with the spirit of God. We also can, we can sing songs, psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs, but it also says in these same passages in Ephesians 5, 19 to 21, is that we sing these songs, we give gratitude to the Lord. That's another way to grow in affection toward him is to thank God for his work, to thank God for his love, to just spend time being grateful to God. It will change your heart. And then lastly, it talks about submitting to one another, serving one another is another way we can grow in affection for God, loving him with all our hearts. Secondly, we love God with all our mind, not just our affection, but our attention. How many of you know that your children feel your love by the attention that you give them, right? And so the same is, is true uh, of God. God uh, gives us this relationship where we have a choice what to set our minds on, and what you set your mind on can either enhance or diminish your ability to feel and experience the love of God. So are you spending time in his word? Are you spending time with him in, in daily fellowship? Are you letting the truth of God's word shape your mind and set your worldview? As you look around at everything going on in the world, is your view of the world coming from a mind of Christ, from the mind of Christ, from the word of God, or is it coming from your, your news feed or, or the opinions of your friends? Are we daily aligning our thinking with that which is counterfeit and opposed to the word of God, or are we blessing God with our mind? by devoting our attention to his word, his truth, his love. And as our minds are aligned with his, our affections follow. Uh, thirdly, Jesus says to love God with our strength. That is our action, to use our time, our talent, and treasures to bless him and to build his kingdom. But this is what we can't miss this morning. As I was reflecting on, on this passage, and this is in this passage is our memory verse for the week as a church. But in this passage, it's this appeal from Jesus to love God deeply, to give him our affection, our attention, to devote to him our action. And, but what we cannot miss is that in this relationship with God Almighty, this is not a religion. This is not a, a religion, it is a relationship. And by that, I mean that God has not simply called us to honor and revere him, to do certain actions, to please him. No, he actually is the initiator of this love relationship. He pursues us with love. Do you know that God loves you? And he loved you first. Before you ever had any affection for God, he loved you first. God takes the initiative. In 1 John 4, 19, it says, we love because he first loved us. So what I wanna do this morning is we turn to Genesis 16. The rest of this, this morning, we're going to look at a story that is in the Old Testament. And through it, we're going to see the way in which God pursues this love relationship. And we're going to see this pursuit of loving relationship with someone who, who uh, is an outsider, someone who is a marginalized person who, who you would not think in their own strength this individual would have anything lovely or lovable, and yet God pursues this woman with love. This is the story of a woman named Hagar in the scriptures. And as we walk through her story together, we're going to, to attempt to connect her story to ours through some application. This is a, a passage that, that has meant a lot to me over the years. I preached on it a, a few years ago, but to set this in context, this is a, we need to remember this very special couple, Abraham and Sarah. And we'll look at them over the coming weeks as we continue in this Will of God series and as we study together in our small groups and as individuals, this Experiencing God workbook and study we've been doing together. We're gonna to look at the life of Abraham and Sarah quite a bit, but this is this husband and wife that God has chosen to bless the world. 
He has chosen Abraham and Sarah through them to bring salvation to the world. And Abraham is the father, we know this, through Sarah, Abraham is the father of the Jewish people. He is a, a forerunner to that offspring which will bring salvation to the world. That is Jesus, our Jewish savior. And you'll remember that in Genesis, God comes to Abraham and he tells him to leave his home. He's living in Ur of the Chaldeans. He's living basically in modern day Iraq and God tells him to leave his home. He doesn't give him a lot of specifics. He just simply says, go to the place that I will show you. And so Abraham and Sarah, they take their livestock, their servants, all their possessions, and they faithfully move forward in this calling of God. They move on this long, long journey, full of faith, stepping out in faith to what God has in store for them, despite them not knowing the full picture. Briefly, they, they go to Egypt, and then they return to this land that God has promised them, and, and they settle in this land, and God has given them in this land this promise. It says that in Scripture that months and years pass, and they're in this land, and God provides for them abundantly. They have wealth, they have crops, they have hundreds of animals, they have numerous servants, they're really rich, but what they don't have is this promise of this offspring. They don't have a child. They have no child, and yet God made them a promise that through their family, that they would be a great nation and that the world would be blessed through them. Nothing has happened though. And it wasn't like God gave them a, a promise and then a few months passed and they're like, okay, he'll get around to it soon. No, 10 years have passed, 10 years and nothing. No fulfillment of this promise. And you remember this, they're getting older and older. This, this seems like it will never happen. And so this is a crazy story, but it's straight from the scriptures, growing impatient with God and with his plan. Sarah, desperate for her dear Abraham to have this child of promise. She's willing to do anything that it takes. And so she takes matters into her own hands. I wonder how many of you have ever tried to move God's plan forward on your own? And ever tried that? How does that go? I mean, hopefully not as complicated as this is about to go, but, but we see that, that uh, God has his own way of doing things. He has his own timing. And as we submit to that, he is trustworthy. When we try to force it ourselves, things can get pretty messy. And so Sarah, she takes her servant, Hagar, to Abraham, and, and this, this young woman, and, and says to Abraham, I want you to marry this servant of mine and to sleep with my young slave, Hagar. And she's going to be a surrogate, and she's going to bear you a child. And Abraham is like, Okay, I mean, if that's what you really want. Hagar was in the household of Abraham, but Hagar was a slave. Most people in those days had a lot of wealth, who had a lot of wealth, also had servants who were part of the household and almost like a part of the extended family. And Hagar was an Egyptian slave in the household of Abraham, and, and she really had no choice in anything that she did. She was property, and she had to do whatever Sarah, her, her uh, mistress, told her to do. I think we need to pause for just a moment to understand this though. In the scriptures, you often hear people say that, that God condones slavery and these kinds of things, and it's not true at all. God does not endorse, condone, or originate slavery anywhere in scriptures. It was something that had become accepted in that culture, which had not yet received the law of God. We need to know that he doesn't endorse polygamy either. He has a far better plan for human flourishing. It is through one man and one woman coming together through lifelong committed partnership before God to be fruitful and multiply. God has a better plan than the way we live. God has a better way than the way we walk. Yet despite these bizarre circumstances, this is the wonder of God. He works within and in spite of corrupt human systems and corrupt intentions. And we thank God for that, that he is sovereign, even in our messes, even in our bad decisions and in our corruption. And so Abraham takes Hagar as a second wife. And sure enough, Hagar becomes pregnant right away. Now I want you to think about how Sarah would feel. 
Now, this was her idea, right? This was uh, an idea of her making, and yet she looks and she sees Hagar suddenly begin to show. She sees the friends of Hagar gathering around her as, as she's saying, feel, feel right here, feel the kicks here. And she, she knows that a child is growing within Hagar. And Sarah looks at this younger woman who now shares something so special with her husband and is now on the outside looking in. Now, if we picture Sarah's position, this must have been brutal for her, her after decades of infertility. Some of you have, have walked through that and you know how devastating it is. Now think of Hagar. Put yourself, if you can, in, in her shoes. She's a slave. She's nobody in the eyes of the world. And now all of a sudden, she has this promise of God the Father in her. How do you think she feels? She's bearing the child of Abraham. I mean, in, in scripture, we see how she feels. She, she starts to feel like a pretty big deal and to treat Sarah with contempt. Maybe it's, it's like a, how do you like me now? Is this going the way you thought it would go? She feels a, a little bit uh, like a big deal and whatever happened, we don't know how this exactly played out between these two women. But what we do know is that Sarah is furious. She, she essentially loses it and she goes to Abraham and, and blames him and says, this is your fault. How could you do this to me? And Abraham, what is he supposed to think? This wasn't even his idea, right? So he just says, she's your servant. And I, I, I hate this. This is like so, so weak, so passive by Abraham here. But he says, she's your servant. Do whatever you think you should do. And so Sarah begins to, to make life miserable for Hagar. She's, she's emotionally and verbally abusive towards her. And eventually Hagar is so worn out by this in the middle of her pregnancy, she's so worn out by this, this abuse and frustration that she can't take it anymore. And even though she's pregnant, she's so tormented and desperate that she runs out into the wilderness risking death and leaves out into the wilderness alone. Verse seven says this, it says that as Hagar's out there in the wilderness alone, it says the angel of the Lord found her by a spring of water in the wilderness the spring on the way to Shur. And he said, Hagar, servant of Sarai, where have you come from and where are you going? And she said, I'm fleeing from my mistress, Sarai. And the angel of the Lord said to her, return to your mistress and submit to her. I wanna pause there for a second. That makes no sense, right? It makes no sense. Go back to Sarah. Go back to this messed up environment. Go back and face the consequences of running away, live in her camp, submit to her rules and her will. Don't you know, God, what I've been through? Don't you know how I'm, I'm suffering? And then the angel of the Lord gives her this promise. The angel of the Lord also said to her, verse 10, I will surely multiply your offspring so that they cannot be numbered for multitude. And the angel of the, of the Lord said to her, behold, you are pregnant. With what? You are pregnant and shall bear a son. And you shall call his name Ishmael because the Lord has listened to your affliction. He shall be a wild donkey of a man, his hand against everyone and everyone's hand against him. And he shall dwell over against all his kinsmen. Now, now you probably know how this has played out historically, this enmity between the offspring of Abraham through Isaac and Ishmael. From the very beginning of this family, when Abraham settles in the promised land, when the Jewish people begin as a nation in this promised land, there is this, this division of the family into Isaac's offspring and Ishmael's. And, and there has been conflict and enmity between Ishmael and the children of Isaac forever. We're seeing this now. We're seeing this uh, across the world. And, and don't 
make the mistake of thinking that this is something new, that this is just some kind of conflict because uh, Israel was moved into this area that didn't belong to them in the 1940s. No, that's not the case. This has been going on for 3,500 years from when Abraham first settled in this promised land. And there's been back and forth conflict. We see it throughout the scriptures, throughout the Old Testament as the offspring of Ishmael. As he marries this Egyptian woman and his family grows, he, he, he becomes the, the uh, forerunner, the forefather of the Arab people. And so this is nothing new as we look and we see this conflict. It's, it's, uh, it should strike us that the conflict going on in Gaza right now is in the exact same area in which the Philistines would have dwelled where there was ongoing constant conflict between the Jewish people and the people of, of that particular part of the land. And so what do we do in response to this? Honestly, when, when we look at the news and we see what's going on there, our attention should be on it because Israel is this, this special chosen people of God. And our hearts should break for what has happened there, the terrorism and the, the ensuing war and the exiles that, that are taking place there. And honestly, last week, as I tried to talk about it, I tried to pray about it in front of the church, I couldn't even speak because it is so heartbreaking what is happening there. But this is the mystery of God that here, he sees this, this woman, Hagar, and, and this child, Ishmael, and he has a plan of salvation for this people and he has a plan of salvation for us through the offspring of Abraham. I don't understand it, but what I, I do know is that we as a church need to pray about this. We need to consistently and constantly seek the hand of the Lord to intervene. We see how this plays out historically, and it's important to keep this, this background in our mind, though that conflict is not our, our focus today. This, this morning, I wanna to continue to focus on this relentless, loving pursuit of God toward Hagar, this outsider, as he looks upon her affliction and he blesses her with a son. Verse 13 says, so she called the name of the Lord who spoke to her. This is a beautiful verse. She called the name of the Lord who spoke to her, you are the God who sees me. For she said, truly, here I have seen him who looks after me. I love this verse. Hagar is a, a nobody. She's a runaway. She's completely alone, distressed. She's lost, and the God of the universe sees her in her distress, and he cares deeply about her. He owes her nothing, but she's precious to him, and he loves her enough to provide for her, to protect her, and to promise her a better future. And so Hagar submits to this instruction from the Lord. She returns to camp, and she continues to serve Sarah, and in time, she does have a beautiful baby boy. And just as God has told, she names the baby Ishmael, which means God hears you. Ishmael is born to Hagar and he, he, he grows up in Abraham's household. And for 13 years, Abraham treats Ishmael as the one and only son because he is. He's the heir. He's, he's the one that, that Abraham begins to see. This must be the son through which this promise is going to be fulfilled. God's promise of making him the father of, of many nations and, and blessing the world through his offspring. But 13 years go by. And this is on Abraham's mind. It's on Ishmael's mind. It has to be on Sarah and Hagar's mind. For 13 years, things are very good for Hagar. And the waters of her life are calm. But guess what happens next? Suddenly, just as God promised, and despite her age, Sarah is miraculously pregnant with the promise of God. Now things make no sense to Hagar again. How is she to understand this? God made her a promise that her son would be great. Now she's pregnant. There's no way my son is going to be the heir now because Sarah is pregnant with the promise that God gave to her. So Sarah has the baby. More confusion follows. A few years pass and at a celebration of the day that Isaac is weaned. He's probably two years old at this point. Sarah notices Ishmael, who's a young teenager, 13, 14 years old, and he's making fun of her toddler, Isaac. That's what 
teenagers do. And there he is making fun of the, the, the child and Sarah has had enough. And so she goes to Abraham and she says, I want this slave woman and her son out of here. I want them gone. Get rid of them. Now, what is Abraham supposed to do? This is his son who he's been raising for, for 13 years. This is a, a, a precious boy to him and he doesn't know what to do. And as he's seeking God's guidance, God instructs him and says, do what she says. Do what Sarah says. Send them away. Now, this is heartbreaking, isn't it? If you're in the position of Hagar and Ishmael. This is not a, a situation of her making. She's being driven from her home and her precious boy, this child of promise, is sent out with her into the wilderness. Abraham gives them a container of water, just a skin full of water, and he sends them out into the harsh desert landscape to walk toward Egypt, the long journey to the southwest, in all likelihood to wander and to die. Now, no doubt, he, he might have hoped that they would somehow survive this, but likely he knew as they left, as did Hagar, that they would likely die on this journey. How were they supposed to do this? Hagar knew this, and so did her 13-year-old Ishmael. And so as they go walking out into the desert, they run out of water, and they begin to lose strength, and they are sure that they will die. It says that when the water in the skin was gone, she put the boy under one of the bushes, then she went off and sat down about a bow shot away for she thought, I cannot watch the boy die. And as she sat there, she began to sob. Ishmael is also crying at this time. And in verse 17, it says, God heard the boy crying. And the angel of God called to Hagar from heaven and said to her, what is the matter, Hagar? Do not be afraid. God has heard the boy crying as he lies there. Lift the boy up and take him by the hand for I will make him into a great nation. Then God opened her eyes and she saw a well of water. So she went and filled the skin with water and gave the boy a drink. Then as they take that water and they're rejuvenated, they continue their journey the rest of the way. And it says God was with the boy as he grew up and he lived in the desert and became an archer. And while he was living in the desert of Paran, his mother got a wife for him from Egypt. That's, that's the last we hear from Hagar and Ishmael in the scriptures. But what we can see in this is that, that Hagar goes through a lot, doesn't she? She suffers a lot. This has been brutal for Hagar. And I know it can be hard for us to see ourselves in the narrative of this story. It's, it's like, how does this apply to my life? Not really going through the same things. How do I understand this? I said at the beginning that what we, we are talking about this morning is this pursuit of God, this loving pursuit of God towards us, towards us despite our background, despite where we came from, the circumstances we find ourselves in. I want us to see how God pursues Hagar with love and how he pursues us in the same way. Through this passage, I want us to see that even in our pain and distress, I want to see us to see the love of God towards us. I think we can learn a lot from Hagar, but what I want to draw out from her life are four ways that we see the love of God revealed in the life of Hagar. And then one more, one more additional, not from her life, but what we see throughout scripture. Number one, we experience God's love as we remember God's promises. I said at the beginning that this is not a sermon necessarily about how we love God more and more, but I want us to understand how much he loves us. And one way we experience the love of God is by remembering his promises. Some of you are in the middle of a storm right now. You're overwhelmed. You don't understand the circumstances of your life. They don't make sense to you. And even though you know God and you trust God, you, you are frustrated by what's happening or worse. And what you need to know more than anything is, is to remember the promises of God. Remember in Genesis 16, 10, God comes to Hagar and he says, I'll give you more descendants than you can count. He gave her a promise. 
And I know that, I have no doubt that in nearly every difficult day, Hagar would return to that promise of hope. She would turn to the God who sees her and, and say, I know that you will do what you promised. God saw the big picture. She didn't. But God gave her a promise, and that was enough to keep her going. We have promises throughout Scripture that we as believers can hold on to. Romans 8.28 says, we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. That is a strong, strong promise. When life feels heavy and overwhelming, and it often does, when I'm tempted to just go off in secret, to run away to a different place and to, to weep before the Lord, when I'm angry at God and, and cry out to God and appeal to God, ultimately what I find comfort in is that he will fulfill his promises. Promises that he will never leave me nor forsake me, that I can cast my anxiety upon him because he cares for me, that he's the same yesterday, today, and forever. That he's demonstrated his love undeniably through the, his shed blood on the cross for me, that he will make all things new. I rest in those promises. Secondly, we can experience God's love as we rely on God's plan. In Hagar's story, the angel of the Lord says to her, return to your mistress and submit to her authority. And you know that was the last thing she wanted to hear. That was not the instruction she wanted. She probably could have taken anything from God but that. Seriously, like, you want me to go back to her? And so instead of relying on God's plan, we'd rather trust in our own plans. I want us to think about the heartache that we would save ourselves if we actually took God at his word. And rather than trying to force God into our plans, we submitted to his plan for our life. We relied on his plan. See, God's way may not make sense in the moment, but if you know the love of God, you know that his plans are always good and they all are always full of hope. Hagar, we see, relies on God's plan. She doesn't have an explanation. All she has is a directive. And we talked about this two weeks ago. That's, that's often the way this Christian life works. God will reveal to us that next step, that next step. And as we trust him and as we rely on him, we will come to experience his love more and more. He asks us to do things often that don't make sense, doesn't he? Like, love our enemies. Forgive that, that person who doesn't deserve it. Be generous when we have little. Put others before ourselves. Many things that on a certain level don't make sense, but as we trust him, that's when we experience his hand and it changes everything. Hagar submitted herself to God's directives, even despite not knowing his plan. She obeyed. And was preserved. Proverbs 3, 5 to 6 says this. It says, trust in the Lord with all your heart. Do not rely on your own understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge him and he will direct your paths. Number three, we experience God's love as we recognize God's provision. In Genesis 21, 19, it says, then God opened her eyes and she saw a well of water. So she went and filled the skin with water and gave the boy a drink. Friends, God has made this a habit in my life. I've, I've experienced this time and time again where God knows exactly what we need, when we need it, and as we pray and seek him, he provides. He provides clearly, not on my schedule, on his. And here's what I've learned. God's provision is exactly what we need when we need it. Not only is God El Roy, the God who sees, but he's also Jehovah Jireh, the God who provides. And we'll talk about the names of God more in the coming weeks. When he provided the water for Hagar and Ishmael in a miraculous well, he didn't show them what was coming or, or why everything was happening, but he provided for them exactly what they needed in that moment. Philippians 4.19 gives us this promise. It says, my God will supply every need of yours according to his riches and glory in Christ 
Jesus. So when life doesn't make sense, we can remember God's promises. We can rely on God's plan. We can recognize his provision. Some of you right now are are listening to this and you're thinking to yourself, I know all that, but can I be honest? When I'm walking through the valley of the shadow of death, like Hagar, all those words can sound pretty trite and meaningless. His promises, his plan, his provision, I know those things, but it's just not helping. Some of you feel that way right now. When life doesn't make sense, we need more than words, don't we? We need presence. We need presence. Some of you who have gone through grief, you know this. When, when hardship is greatest, the words needed are the fewest. I think that's why David writes this. He says, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. Why? Because of your promises? Because of your plan? Because of your provision? No, he says, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. We experience God's love as we rest in God's presence. When you're like Hagar, dealing with circumstances you didn't create, dealing with hurt that seems overwhelming, when you're wrestling with a time in your life that is absolute misery, and even the promises, plans, and provision of God don't feel like enough, what I can tell you is God's presence is enough. I want you to listen to to Genesis 16, 13. It says, thereafter, Hagar used another name to refer to the Lord who had spoken to her. She said, you are the God who sees me. You are the God who sees me. Just because you don't feel the presence of God doesn't mean he's not there. And what I will say to you this morning is is for those that are suffering and struggling and you're trying to know and do the will of God, but, but his plan doesn't make sense. He sees you and he knows what you're going through. There have been many times in my life when I felt lost and alone. I felt that God wasn't close. I thought God was silent, that it seemed like my prayers weren't getting through. But even in those moments when I didn't feel his presence, he was there. And, and there have been times when the only comfort, the only assurance of his love was that I knew he was with me and that he saw me and he sees you even now. Lastly, number five, we experience God's love as we receive his pardon. Now, we don't see this in the story of Hagar. But what we see through the, the life of Abraham and Sarah and Hagar is the beginning of this grand plan of salvation that God carries out to bring his son Jesus into this world. God Almighty, to put on flesh and to dwell among us. Despite all the enmity, brokenness, and sin that once reigned in us and is evident all around us, God sent his very son, the offspring of Abraham, Jesus Christ, to bring salvation. And I want you to think about this. He, he, he came to bring salvation to all who would turn to him, whether in Israel or in Palestine or here in the United States of America. He has come and provided a way. And this is the wonder of the love of God. Romans 5, 8. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Jesus died to take our place, to pay our sin, so that by believing in him, we could receive pardon from God, but more than pardon, eternal life as his children, as sons and daughters. The other day as I was, um, uh, I was spending some time with the Lord, this is something that, that I do occasionally as a pastor and as a follower of Jesus, right? We spend time with God. And I decided I was going to take a walk and pray. And I was walking and talking to the Lord. And what I could see in my life was all the ways, I was expressing gratitude to God in all the ways I had seen his love poured out on people around me. I could see the way that he was providing comfort to people in my life that were suffering. I could see how he had poured out his, his love on my friends who gave his life to Jesus. I could see how he poured out his love on my son in leading him to a saving faith in himself. 
I could see how he was at work in the men on the men's retreat last weekend, pouring out his love on them, revealing his love to them. God pursues us with love, how he was ministering to the hurting. But honestly, this is something that, that I was feeling in the moment was, God, I see how you love all these people around me. I see how you're doing that. But right now, can I be really needy? Can I be really honest? I am not feeling your love for me. And you know, that's kind of a needy prayer, isn't it? God, I'm not feeling it for myself. And this is the, the, the reality and the personal nature of, of the love of God. I, I prayed something like really kind of weak, but honest. I said, Lord, I see your love revealed to all these other people, but I'm not feeling it for me. Would you reveal your love to me? And immediately it was like, a, like an arrow piercing my heart. His response, the Lord spoke to my mind and he said, Mark, I gave my son for yours. Real and personal. Like that, to me, that was enough, you know? In that moment, to, to sense and feel the love of God towards me. God's love is personal for you. And I don't know what you need this morning in order to experience that ministering love of God towards you, but you need to know this. God is in pursuit of a love relationship with you. So I wanna pray for you right now as the band comes up that he would reveal his love. Heavenly Father, the depth of your love, Lord, we, we cannot grasp it, Lord. Our eyes are, are so drawn to other things. But I pray this morning for each person here that we would experience your love. Lord, that our hearts, our minds, our souls, our strength would be drawn to you in loving affection in response to your love. Oh God, for each person here, each individual, you love them uniquely, individually. And Lord, I pray that you would reveal your love in a personal way. I pray you would touch hearts and that you would draw us to yourself. And if there's anyone here this morning who has never received your pardon, I pray that they would simply turn to the God who sees and say, here's my life, Lord. Here's my sin. I lay it before you. Come into my life. I receive your salvation. God, we love you. We do. We love you. And we pray that you would be honored as we sing praises to you right now in Jesus' name, amen.